I'd like to introduce you to a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Brian Fickert. Thanks for coming up, Brian. It's good to see you. Um, I, I, some of you may, I hear you're starting to write books these days, is that? One or two. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Could you make the next one a little more challenging? More challenging. Yes. I'll work on that. Okay. Great. Just for you. Great. All right. Well, hey, really excited. Brian brings a perspective to missions that I think is phenomenal, has an incredible education background um, in economics, uh, and won't go into a whole bio um, other than to say that his mind thinks different and is very good and challenging to the way that missions has been done for years and years and years. And I appreciate that he draws back um, from a foundation of economics, actually, a way that, that the Bible intends and speaks to the philosophies and the foundations and missions I think is very powerful. So, Brian, we're glad you're here. Thanks, brother. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're here to consider some of the greatest issues facing humanity, global poverty, the spread of diseases, the kingdom of God. And some of you have traveled a long ways to be here tonight. And I know that as you sit there tonight, you have profound questions on your mind, deep, burning, profound questions, questions such as, how tall is that guy anyways? How's the weather up there? What does his wife look like? What about his kids? And so let me address those deep and burning, profound questions right away. I'm six foot ten. I'm, I'm of Dutch descent. The Dutch are the tallest nation in the world. Are there Dutch people here tonight? Oh, my world. Oh. I married a woman who was five foot five, hoping that she would dilute the gene pool. It is not working. I have three children. Jessica is a sophomore at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where I teach. She is beautiful inside and out. She's also six foot one. If you come down the lane with a basketball, she'll shove it down your throat. I have a son, Joshua, who's a senior in high school. When I left the house this morning, he was six foot seven. And I have a little girl, Anna, who's 14. It's not yet clear what she will be, but we have a sneaking suspicion. I'm a professor at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. This morning I was lecturing on top of that mountain on international trade theory. By the looks and the faces of the students, they had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. I hope that tonight goes better. If you're a college student, raise your hand. Oh, my word. Praise God. What a great, great thing. I just love college students. How many of you have ever been on a short-term missions trip? Raise your hand and keep it up. Confession time. <laughs> Short-term missions has become a booming, booming and expanding movement. And with good reason, because short-term trips can be powerful experiences. About seven years ago, my wife and three kids and I spent about five months in East Africa. We lived on the campus of Ugandan Christian University, and we, we got to go into slums and do some ministry there from time to time, and... We came back to the States, and as my kids matured and grew, they decided they wanted to make public professions of faith at our church. They wanted to join our church. And as they met with the elders, and as the elders interviewed them, the elders asked my kids, each of them in turn, several years apart, can you point to one significant spiritual event in your life? And all three of my kids, even the youngest, who's always trying to be different, all three of my kids said, our time in Uganda was the most significant spiritual experience in my life. God seemed more real there. We saw God's power poured out. We saw demons cast out in slums in Uganda. And God seemed more real than He does here in America. And as we saw the power of God, it led to us wanting to draw nearer to God. I believe God used that short-term experience to draw my children to saving faith with Him, which is my deepest, deepest longing. Short-term trips can be powerful, and many of you have experienced the power of that. But we've also seen mothers who live in the slum of Kibera, one of the largest slums in all of Africa, write letters to the New York Times Write letters to the New York Times saying, we are not animals in a zoo. Would you please tell the short-term teams that come in to stop gawking at us? Would you stop giving your kid 
a great experience at the expense of mine. Short-term trips can be powerful experiences for everybody. And they can also do real harm. In order to understand that, we've got to back up and, and get a little bit of theory under our belts. But to get us going here, let's do this little exercise. I want you to, I'm a professor, and so there's going to be tests throughout. Take out some paper and write down this. Imagine that you're trying to design a short-term missions program for your church. What are some key questions that you should ask? You're trying to design a short-term missions program for your church. What are some key questions that you should ask or that you should think about as you unpack or as you plan those trips and those, that program? What do you think? Shout out your answers. One, two, three, go. In space, nobody can hear you scream. And in this church, you can't either. Those are all good things to ask, I, th- I think. There's one more question I think you ought to ask yourselves as you design those short-term trips, and that's this. What is poverty? What is poverty? Because most short-term trips are designed to go and work amongst the poor. And so let's ask ourselves, what is poverty? Folks, this is not just an academic question. Think of it this way. Many of you are doctors. When you go to the doctor, the first thing the doctor does is try to diagnose what's wrong with you. And several things can go wrong at that moment. Sometimes the doctor simply misdiagnoses the nature of your illness and gives you the wrong treatment. Other times the doctor treats symptoms rather than underlying causes. Either one of those can be deadly. Think of the, the case of treating symptoms rather than underlying causes. What if you go to the doctor and you say to the doctor, I've got a headache. And the doctor gives you two, two Tylenol, but you've actually got a brain tumor. Treating symptoms rather than underlying causes can kill you. And notice it doesn't matter how much the doctor loves you. It doesn't matter how compassionate the doctor is. It doesn't matter if the doctor's gone to the Global Missions Health Conference. It doesn't matter if the doctor knows that the Green Bay Packers are God's team. At that moment, all that matters is does the doctor get the diagnosis correct. And the same is true when we work with the poor. How we diagnose the causes of poverty determines the solutions that we use to alleviate that poverty. If we get the diagnosis of poverty incorrect, our solutions to poverty will also be incorrect and we can do real harm. We've got to get the diagnosis straight. Different understandings of the causes of poverty lead to different proposed solutions. If we think that poverty is a lack of knowledge, we'll focus on providing education. If we think that poverty is due to oppression by powerful people, we'll focus on trying to change the systems and working for social justice. If we think poverty is the personal, due to the personal sins of the poor, we'll focus on evangelism and discipleship. How we define the problem determines the solutions that we use to alleviate the problem. I want to draw particular attention to the last row here, a lack of material things. If we define poverty as fundamentally about a lack of material things, our approach is going to tend towards providing greater access to material things. And there's a reason I want to draw particular attention to that last row, and that's this. Most North Americans, if you ask them what is poverty, will define poverty as a lack of some material thing. Now make no mistake about it, there's a material dimension to poverty. We are whole people. We are body and soul. There is a material dimension to poverty. But most North Americans, I'm afraid to admit most economists, of which I am one, have reduced poverty to a lack of some material thing. Americans tend to think that poverty is rooted in a lack of income, a lack of health care, a lack of housing, a lack of food, a lack of wealth. We tend to define poverty as a lack of material things, and hence our solutions tend towards the material. This is true 
at a global level. It's true at a national level. Think of our welfare system in America. It's true in our churches when we have clothes closets and soup kitchens. And there is a place for that. It's also true when we pull up at a traffic light and we roll down the window and put a quarter in the hand of a homeless person thinking it will solve the problem. A number of years ago, the World Bank asked poor people all around the world. They interviewed 60,000 poor people. They asked them, what is poverty? The same question that I asked you. And this is the kind of thing that poor people around the world said when asked that question. This is a quote from a woman from Moldova. For a poor person, everything is terrible. Now listen to how she's defining poverty. Listen to the words she's using. For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, and shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. What are the words that you hear there? Shout them out. Shame. Humiliation. Like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Poor people around the world, when you ask them what is poverty, talk in psychological and social terms as much as material terms. Poor people around the world tend to define their poverty as, I feel less than human. I feel like I'm not really part of society. I feel like I can't really affect change in my life. I'm an economist. It pains me to have to admit that psychology and sociology might be legitimate disciplines. And folks, here's the problem. The poor tend to define their poverty in psychological and social terms. We tend to define it in material terms. And that disconnect between how we think about it and how they experience it is at the heart of a crisis. And it's at the heart of the crisis in short-term missions. We've got to get the diagnosis correct. So what we're going to do here, in the little bit of time we have, is try to root our understanding of poverty in a biblical narrative. Let's go way back to the beginning. What do we know about God from before the creation of the world? I told you, way back to the I'm a professor, it's all deductive. What do we know about God from before the creation of the world? Well, we don't know much, but we know this. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost exist from all eternity in relationship to one another. God is fundamentally a relational being, and He is in relationship with Himself. And He's wired human beings in His image. He has wired us for relationship as well. And what the Scriptures teach is that at the point of creation, human beings, body and soul, are wired for four key relationships. Our primary relationship is with God Himself. It's a relationship that is to be characterized by bringing honor and glory to God in all that we do. It's also a relationship that's to be characterized by intimacy. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. We are told to call him Abba, Father, something like Daddy. Our relationship with ourselves, our self-image, our self-concept, how we think of ourselves. What the Bible teaches is that we are made with inherent dignity and worth. A relationship with others, a sense of community. We're to love others as much as we love ourselves. And finally, a relationship with the rest of creation. There's two dimensions to that one. We're to preserve and protect the creation, but we're also supposed to unpack and unfold it. We're supposed to work and to support ourselves through our work. That's what we're wired for. Folks, when these four relationships are working properly, when these four relationships are working the way that God designed them to work, 
We experience humanness in the way that God intended. It fits right. It feels good. We're square pegs in square holes. This is the good life. To experience these four relationships in the way that God designed them to be experienced. It's what we're longing for. When I get on the airplane to fly, all of my sanctification is at stake. Because I will walk past the exit row and somebody four foot two will be sitting in that seat. And I have to walk past them to my seat. And it doesn't fit. And I stand there with my head like this in the airplane. And I look down at that seat and I wonder, what would it be like if it fit me? What would it feel like if it was made for me? What would life look like if we experienced these relationships in the way that God intended? Folks, these relationships are the foundation for life. They're the foundation for community. If you want to change a community, you've got to get down to the foundations of that community. How people are living out their relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. Because the way that a community creates business, the way that it does art, the way that it creates schools and families and culture and economic and political and religious systems are expression of their fundamental commitments to God, self, others. And the rest of creation. I live in the South. In the South, we decided that the other was not fully human if the other was African American. And as a result, we created economic, political, and religious systems that locked African Americans in place. The systems that we create are expressions of our fundamental commitments to God, self, others, and the rest of creation. But then the fall happens. Immediately what we read in the Genesis account is that all four relationships are broken. Adam and Eve exchange an intimacy with God for a poverty of spiritual intimacy. They hide from God. They're afraid of Him. They experience a poverty of stewardship. Adam is told that thorns will infest the ground. Eve is told there will be pains in childbearing. We are wired for work and to bear the fruit of that work, but it doesn't work anymore. And we're frustrated. Broken relationship with others, a poverty of community. Adam starts to blame Eve. A broken relationship with self, a poverty of being. Shame. Adam and Eve cover themselves. They're ashamed of their humanness. That shame that we heard in the quote from the woman in Moldova goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And because, because human beings are broken, and because these relationships are broken, the systems that human beings create are broken as well. We have a broken economic system. We have a broken health system. Some of you are wondering, what is this slide good for? This one slide is a critique of both the Republican and Democratic parties. You see, the Republicans think that people are poor because they don't have good values, because they them, because the poor don't work hard, they don't have a good work ethic. And they forget that the systems are broken too. Democrats focus on broken systems. And they're right. The systems are broken. But individual behaviors can contribute to poverty. The fall has affected everything. What I'm trying to say, folks, is this. When we see a person who's materially poor, that material poverty is a symptom of something deeper. We've got to stop treating symptoms and get down to the root causes. I'm going to give you some examples of what this looks like on the ground in, in some places of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. I'm going to give you a few examples just to illustrate my points. Poverty of spiritual intimacy. People worship spirits and false gods. When my wife and three kids and I were living in Uganda, we noticed that all the schools were closed. When we asked, why are the schools closed, this is what we were told. They said, there's, there, there's a guy in our town who was a cobbler. He wasn't making any money as a cobbler. So he decided to switch his line of business to something else. And I thought, he's an entrepreneur, that's, that's impressive. But here's the problem. This man, like the other people in this part of Uganda, were animists. Now, animists 
believe that the material world is controlled by spiritual forces. That human beings and trees and cats are kind of all on the same level. And what's really in charge are spiritual forces overhead. So when something happens in the material world, there's a spiritual cause of it. Now think about providing health care in that kind of environment. You're working amongst people who basically believe that anything that happens physically is due to something spiritual. It may be. So this guy has a problem. He wants to switch his line of business to something else. But his ancestors for generations, they've all been cobblers. And so if he switches his line of business to something else, he will offend his great-grandmother's ancestral spirit. And if great-grandmother's ancestral spirit ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So this guy goes to the local witch doctor or shaman and he says to the witch doctor, what do I do? I want to switch my line of business. And the witch doctor says, go and get the heads of 40 children as a sacrifice to appease your ancestral spirits. Folks, this is not a worldview that is conducive to material progress. But you can't solve that problem just by dumping resources and treating the symptoms. You've got to get down to the worldview issues, the spiritual issues. Broken relationship with creation. Failure to take dominion. Many animists don't have a sense that they are in charge of creation. Again, the spiritual forces are in charge. Pocomchi Indians in Latin America were led to Christ 30 or 40 years ago. Relatively recently, a missionary visited the Pocomchi and the missionary noticed something. Children of the Pocomchi were starving. They were malnourished in the villages. The men were sitting there, and in front of the men were mounds of corn that the men had planted and harvested. And there were rats eating the corn. Children malnourished in the village, men watching rats eat corn. The missionary said to the men, who's in charge here today? You are the rats. And the men scratched their heads and they said, I guess the rats are in charge. And the missionary said, no, the Jesus Christ that you believed in is is restoring you to right relationship with creation. You're in charge of creation. You're called to have dominion. And as a result of that shift in their worldview, the Pokemchi were able to be taught to put the corn in bins and silos to protect it from the rats. And then the Pokemchi's men said to themselves, well, if we're in charge of creation, that means we should prepare our kids to be in charge of creation. We should put our sons and daughters in school so they could develop their talents. The shift was a worldview shift. You can't solve it just by hurling resources at it. And folks, I need you to see something. If you hurl resources at people who have an animistic worldview, you can confirm the lies in that worldview. You see, in animism, outside forces are in control. Imagine you're in Haiti. And your worldview is that outside forces are in control. You had the colonizers come and run your country. And then an earthquake hits your country. And then floods of short-term teams hit your country. Hurling resources at people can confirm their sense that they are not really able to affect change in their own environments. Poverty of community, intertribal conflict. A genocide breaks out in Rwanda about 19 years ago. One tribe decides to annihilate another tribe. About a million people were slaughtered in the, in the space of four months. The gross national product of the country plummeted that year because you can't run a country in the midst of intertribal conflict and civil war, but you can't solve that problem by hurling resources at it. Poverty of being, that marred identity that we saw in that woman from Moldova. A sense of shame. If you have a sense of shame, if you have a sense of inferiority, you can't look a potential employer in the eye and get a job. 
But you can't solve that problem through handouts. What is poverty? This is from Bryant Myers in his excellent book, Walking with the Poor. He says this, Poverty is a result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not harmonious, that are not for life, that are not enjoyable. Poverty is rooted in broken relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. Now, what I said to you earlier was, how we define the problem determines the solutions that we use to alleviate the problem. Once you define poverty as being rooted in broken relationships, that completely orients what you're going to do to try to alleviate poverty. Suddenly, it's not about hurling resources around. Suddenly, it's about something completely different. It's going to require different tools. It's going to have a different set of goals. I want to introduce you to one more people group. See if you can guess who this people group is. They too are suffering from broken relationships. They have a poverty of spiritual intimacy. They deny God's existence or act as though he's irrelevant. You see, whereas animists believe that the spiritual controls everything, this people group thinks There's nothing but matter. There is no spiritual at all. This group also has a poverty of stewardship. They're workaholics. You see, to be a workaholic is as much a sin as laziness is. It's just a different sin. This group has a poverty of community. They're self-centered. They typically don't even know the name of the person living across the street from them. This people group has a poverty of being as well. They're not full of shame. They're full of pride. Some would say they have God complexes. They believe they have been uniquely anointed to bring their wisdom and their culture to save the rest of the world. Any idea who this people group is? Yeah, it's us. Folks, we are profoundly broken people. The way that we are broken doesn't bubble up in material poverty, but it bubbles up in other sorts of problems nonetheless. Our divorce rates are skyrocketing. The other day, the student services at my college spoke to the faculty, and this is the report they gave to us. They said the the, the, uh GPAs of our incoming students, their their grade point averages of our incoming students are the highest they've ever been. They said the SAT and ACT scores of our students are the highest they've ever been. And the mental illness of our incoming freshmen is the highest we've ever seen before. And it's a national trend. Folks, Western civilization isn't working that well. And it's starting, it's starting to become clearer. So who are the poor? If poverty is rooted in broken relationships, who are the poor? I'd like to submit to you that we're the poor. That all of us are poor, it just manifests itself in different ways. And here's the thing. I've come to believe that until we embrace this idea that we are poor, until we embrace the idea that we ourselves are poor, our efforts to help the materially poor are likely to hurt them and ourselves. I'm going to say that again. Until we embrace the idea that we ourselves are poor, our efforts to help the materially poor are likely to hurt them and ourselves. Let me try to unpack this for you. What I've done here is put all four relationships together. I put the materially poor on the top and the materially non-poor at the bottom, trying to emphasize for you that, once again, we are in this together. I want to draw particular attention to the broken relationship with self. Because when people who have God complexes, when people who are full of pride, when people who think that they are anointed to fix the rest of the world, come into contact with people who have a sense of shame, it's a bad mix. Because the way that we speak to them, the things that we say to them, confirm in them that in fact they're helpless. And as that happens, they become more passive, and as they become more passive, we get more frustrated with them. Their shame is enhanced, and our pride is enhanced. And this is particularly problematic 
if you have a material definition of poverty. Now hang with me. I know it's late and you're tired. I'm an economist and I've been taught that if it matters, you can put it into an equation. So this is the fundamental equation for how to hurt in the process of trying to help. Now, we're going to reduce all of human history to one equation with three variables. We might be missing some nuance in the process. Here we go. If you start with a material definition of poverty, poverty is about a lack of stuff. In most North Americans, that's our framework. And you add in the God complex is the pride that many of us have. And then you throw in the shame, the marred identity that many poor people have. You put those three things together, you're going to end up with harm to both parties. Here's why. If you start off with the material definition of poverty. Oh, Lord, please let there be some money in here. If you start with the material definition of poverty that I'm not poor. I'm okay. I won the game of life. I'm successful. I've arrived. I'm the goal. And not only am I the goal, not only have I arrived, but I have what you need. I am the solution for you. It necessarily puts me in the role of fixer and savior. Let me give you an example. I know of a church that wanted to reach out to materially poor people in the neighborhood around the church. The church was primarily full of middle, well, the kind of folks like most of you, middle class Caucasian Americans. The neighborhood around the church was full of low income people, primarily African Americans. The church went door to door delivering turkeys at Thanksgiving time. The church got to Christmas, went door to door, handing out presents, turkeys and toys. Now, let me apologize in advance. In every audience, the head of the International Turkey Federation Ministry is present. I'm sorry. I love turkeys. Turkeys are the kingdom. (laughs) Turkeys and toys. Turkeys and toys. It's a material approach to trying to solve the problem. After several years, nothing had changed. And the people in the church started to get disgusted. Have you ever noticed how the people in those households don't ever seem to be working? Have you ever noticed how there's beer cans under the front porch? Have you ever noticed how the kids are dirty? The pride is going up. We even try to help these people year in and year out, and they never change. The pride is going up. More research was done, and they found something. They found that there were... There were men in those households, African-American males, who for a variety of reasons, both personal and systemic, had a hard time finding and keeping work. And they were ashamed about it. And they were embarrassed by it. And when those African-American males saw a bunch of white folks coming at them with turkeys and toys, turkeys and toys that they could not afford provided for themselves, they ran out the back door of the house, they hid behind garbage cans and bushes to avoid the shame of watching a bunch of people from the church Deliver turkeys and toys to them. Now, some of you are saying to yourselves, who could possibly think that turkeys and toys are going to solve poverty? Most evangelical church in America, apparently. But my story, while it's true, is also a metaphor. You see, you can put any material resource in my story. You can put any material resource in the place of turkeys and toys, and my story explains what's going on. We're bringing wells in. We're bringing malaria nets in. We're bringing in houses. We're bringing in all kinds of things. But how we do it matters. It's possible to hurt the poor in the process of trying to help them. So what's the first step in poverty alleviation? I'd like to submit to you the first step in poverty alleviation is actually repentance. It's actually repentance. But the repentance I'm talking about is our repentance. I believe we need to repent of the first two variables in that equation. We've got to repent of our pride. We've got to repent of our material understanding of the world. Folks, what I'm saying to you is that the first step in poverty alleviation is for you and I to embrace the gospel. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that you're okay. The good news of the gospel is that you and I stink.
The good news of the gospel is that we think that all of our righteous acts are filthy rags. The good news of the gospel is that while we were yet enemies of the cross, Christ died for us. The good news of the gospel is that even though we stink, Jesus shows up and he helps us to smell better. But the problem is that we start to think that our good smell is something we got on our own. The good smell is all from him. We've got to embrace the good news of the gospel that we stink but that Jesus doesn't stink because we've got to overcome our pride in order to walk well with the poor. Poverty alleviation is about reconciling relationships. It's a process in which people, both the materially poor and non-poor, move closer to living in right relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. Poverty alleviation is, about, is not about me being up here and the materially poor down here and me going and fixing them. That's not what it is. It's about me being right here, and the materially poor person right here, and us holding hands and saying, we both need help, brother. It's a different posture. If you're sleeping, the most important thing is just the head. Now, when I teach at the college, and I've used this about six times in the semester already, it doesn't work anymore. So now I've got to pull out the nuclear warheads. This will definitely be on the final exam. The most important thing is Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 describes Jesus Christ as the creator and sustainer of all things. He's present. He's connected. He's here. He's touching the spiritual and the physical touch in Christ. He holds the atoms in place. He makes the sun go up and go down. They're not hanging out there on their own. His hand holds them in place and it does one more thing. You see, if poverty is rooted in broken relationships, folks, we've got a problem. Because I can't reconcile relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. I can't do that, but somebody else can. Colossians chapter 1 says this, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, that is Jesus Christ, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. The hand of Jesus Christ creates the universe, it sustains the universe, and it's fixing the universe. This is not Star Trek Jesus. Many of us, our conception of Jesus Christ is like Star Trek. When Captain Kirk is on the planet and the Martians are coming out from behind the rocks, what does Captain Kirk do? Beam me up, Scotty. Many of us, our conception of Jesus Christ is that in the face of HIV AIDS, in the face of malnutrition, in the face of little girls being sold into brothels, all that our Jesus Christ can do is beam our souls up out of here. And we float around in clouds, playing harps and wearing diapers. I don't want to go there. That's not who Colossians 1 Jesus is. Colossians 1 Jesus looks at little girls being sold into brothels. He looks at malnutrition. He looks at HIV AIDS and he says, I came to die for all of that, to reconcile the whole thing. To reconcile is to put into right relationship again. Jesus Christ is the one who alleviates poverty. You and I cannot. There's some immediate implications for how we work with the poor. I've got about eight more hours of material. I've got ten minutes left. Ready? Here we go. We must walk humbly with the materially poor because Christ is transforming both of us. We're not the fixer. Christ is the fixer. Number two, we must address worldview issues. You've got to get down to people's basic understanding of God, self, others, and the rest of creation. This is profoundly important in the area of health in particular. Many global health diseases could be serious, uh, seriously reduced if people simply understand a few things about cause and effect in the disease processes. 
We must recognize that poor people, most, not all, but most poor people need development, not relief. I've got to go really fast here. This is our little guy here in Haiti. The earthquake hits. This person is plunged downward in a crisis during that time period. Relief is the right intervention. Relief is a handout. It's the appropriate intervention when a person is helpless. But once the bleeding is stopped, it is profoundly important that we ask the poor to participate in their own improvement. Because if we prolong relief, we create dependencies. Once the bleeding is stopped, we enter the phase of rehabilitation, restoring Haiti to its pre-crisis conditions. The rehab phase involves the Haitians participating in their own improvement. It means asking the Haitians to help rebuild their country. Not because we don't love them, but because we do love them. They are called to use their gifts and to steward creation. That's what it means to be human. And then development is walking with the Haitians across time, helping them to experience greater reconciliation with God's self, others, and the rest of creation. The dynamic in relief is a handout. The dynamic in development is walking together across time in highly relational and empowering ways. They're completely different dynamics. In relief, you're giving things away. In development, you're asking them to use their gifts to solve their problems. And here's the thing. Most poor people aren't coming out of a crisis. The vast majority of poor people around the world are in a chronic condition. They don't need relief. They need development. The number one problem we see American churches making around the world is they provide relief, handouts in contexts that call for development. It's the funniest thing. I have a sticking suspicion there's one or two Republicans in the room tonight. Just one or two. Evangelical Christians love, love, love to criticize the federal government's welfare programs. And then we go and, and, and replicate those in our churches. We give handouts left and right, creating dependencies left and right, and then we criticize the federal government for doing it. It's the funniest thing. Use asset-based, not needs-based approaches. Most of us go into a poor community, we say basically to poor people, now remember, God complex, marred image, dynamic. God complex, marred image, dynamic that we're trying to overcome. We walk into poor communities, we walk up to poor people, and we say, I'm here in the name of Jesus to love you. Karen, what's wrong with you? And how can I fix you? That's not a good starting point for overcoming this dynamic we're trying to get out of. A better starting point would be this. Karen, what gifts and abilities do you have? What dreams do you have? How can you use your gifts and your abilities to achieve your dreams? How can we walk with you in that process? You see, the goal is not for you to go around fixing everything. The goal is for human beings to become human beings. To be able to use their gifts, their resources, to honor and glorify God, to be restored to right relationship. Finally, use participatory, not blueprint approaches. Most Americans use blueprint approaches. We sit in a boardroom, we figure out what people in Haiti need, and we go and do it to them. And then we want to scale it up, so we go and do it to Kenya. Then we go and do it to Uganda. We treat the poor like rats in a maze. And we go and we act upon them. Folks, they're the ones living there. God has called them to be stewards of that community. A participatory approach says, let's ask them what they want to do. Let's ask them what their goals are. Let's ask them how they think it should be done. And then let's ask them whether or not it was successful. With all of that background, how should we think about short-term missions? My co-author and I want you to know that we love all short-term missionaries. I want to get out of here alive tonight. We love all short-term missionaries, but we have some concerns as well. Here's why. 
Many short-term missions trips emanate from a material understanding of poverty. The entire approach is, let's take a bunch of stuff to Haiti and drop it off. It's not a relational understanding of poverty. Folks, if poverty is rooted in broken relationships, you can't solve poverty in a week. But you can sure make it worse. You can sure make it worse. Many short-term missions teams apply relief in contexts in which development is the appropriate intervention. And folks, that does tremendous harm. Let me give you an example. I know of a ministry in the Dominican Republic. A ministry that's staffed by Dominicans. It's a ministry that, that, that operates in some slums in the Dominican Republic. And they're doing good development work. Walking with people across time. Helping them to discover their gifts. Helping them to develop their own communities. I should have said they were doing good development work. Because they can't anymore. You see, what these folks were doing, what this organization was doing, this Dominican organization, was doing a lot of Bible clubs with young people in the community. Week in and week out, discipleship. It's development. But wave after wave after wave of short-term teams have come from America into that same community, handing out toys, conducting vacation Bible school using high-gloss materials, And then they go back again. You see, there's no long-term relationship there at all. The Dominican children won't go to the Bible clubs run by the Dominican ministry anymore. When they were asked why the children said this, they said, the local people don't give us toys. They don't have those fancy materials. And the Americans are more interesting than the Dominican staff are. Folks, there's a lot of poor people in the Dominican Republic, but they're not helpless. They don't need relief. They produce half of Major League Baseball, for pity's sakes. (laughs) Most short-term missions trips are needs-based, not asset-based. Most short-term missions trips are not participatory. Guys, most short-term trips violate every principle that we know of good development. And they can do real harm to everybody involved. Now, I said at the front end, I believe short-term trips could be powerful. Here's some real quick suggestions. Number one, generally speaking, go as a learner rather than as a doer. Go as a learner. And communicate that you're going as a learner to your financial supporters so that they know what it's about. This past Sunday I was with a bunch of young women from a basketball team that might be at a certain college I know something about. The story's getting a little too close to home. And last year that basketball team went on a short-term trip. And I said to the girls, you guys going to go on on a trip this year? And they said, we hope not. And I said, why? And they said, Dr. Fickert, we went and played two basketball games and went to the beach. $100,000 was spent from our churches. How can we look our supporters in the eye? Go as learners rather than doers. Now, guys, I haven't contextualized this very much for the medical people because I don't know your world very much. There are doctors who need to go as doers in some cases. Some of the doctors who have skills that are in short supply in those contexts, those doctors need to go as doers. What research has shown is that simply going on a trip has no lasting impact unless that trip is embedded in a learning process that includes pre-trip learning and post-trip debriefing that lasts about a year. An event does not lead to very much transformation. Go and love the missionaries. Go and love the people who are there over the long haul. 
find organizations on the ground that are doing good development work and go and love on those organizations taking a backstage role rather than a front and center role. Love on them, pray for them, encourage them. It's powerful ministry, but it's backstage ministry. Consider alternative approaches. Folks, if you want to solve poverty, in most instances, there are bigger bangs for your buck. If you want to go and learn, or if you want to go and support those who are there, it makes good sense. But if you think you're going to solve poverty in a week, it's pretty tough. Folks, I don't want to end on a down note. There's a lot of energy in the room. There's a lot of excitement in the room, and there ought to be. Because God has called us here to great things. But we can do better. We must do better, because the stakes are that high. Let's pray. Lord, we've been to many seminars We've been to many conferences. I pray that this conference would not be just another one. I pray that we would be able to look back from all eternity and say that something happened in three days in Louisville, Kentucky. That was for the glory of your name, the extension of your kingdom, and the strengthening of your church. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show up and affect our hearts and our minds. That you would do something powerful over these several days that would equip your people for powerful, reconciling ministry because you are about reconciliation. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for arrogance. Forgive us for thinking that we don't need you. Because it's really all about you. And so we cry out. And we ask that you would heal us. And help us to be part of your healing story all around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.